0: In three, two, one, and we're live. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not
1: why you were here?
0: How about no, you crazy Dutch bastard? What we've got here is failure to communicate.
1: of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense.
0: Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your
1: soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious, I am serious. Now don't call me stupid.
0: what's up everybody it's friday night you know what that means it's the dtd podcast we have an old friend back in the studio and he needs really no further introduction we've had him here before you guys loved him and asked for him to come back again we have daryl davis in the studio with us tonight but tonight we're not going to talk about all of his kkk and racial dealings we're going to talk about music and how it bridges the gap between everybody so without further ado Mr. Daryl Davis. How are you, sir?
1: Hey, man, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me back and all you people out there for inviting me. I I, I love coming on this show, so it's a real pleasure.
0: Well, we uh, we talked about a lot of stuff last time and and we got back together and we kind of put our heads together and said, hey, let's uh, let's talk about the music this time, because there's so much of your story that we didn't even get to. We we covered the major points that the documentary covered and all those kind of things, but we didn't cover, you know, what you've done and and kind of the changes that you've made in music and all of the very famous people that you've traveled with. Now, uh, let's start with your career career. as of right now so what's been going on since the last show what do you have set up for the next year once we come out of this and and where do we go from here sure
1: well uh i i started a podcast i've been interviewing a lot of uh very fascinating people and uh i've i've completed writing my second book and the the second book will be called the clan whisperer and it will have all the material from the old book which you know the first book clandestine relationships which came out at the end of 1997, beginning in 98. So a lot of things have transpired since then. Uh, we've had a black president. We've had uh, more immigration in the country. We have the current administration, and all of these things uh, have have changed the landscape uh, and um, and the way uh, our our country is. You know, every every new uh, administration, you know, changes the course of the country. So I want to include that in the new book. So it will have the old stuff, updates, and new stories.
0: Well, that's uh, very good to hear. Um, and do you know, I, I didn't catch it just now, do you have a name for it? Yes, it's called The Clan Whisperer. Okay, The Clan Whisperer. I thought you said that, but I, I wasn't sure if that's what you called it. But I think you kind of put that into all of your stuff, right? You You find a way to kind of I don't, I don't want to say sneak the word in, but you figure out a way to put it into your titles and, and the different things that you do.
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I, I didn't start off with that, but but my life has been cons- consumed with it uh, because of all the things going on in our climate uh, today and certainly, you know, all of my life. But, uh, you know, music is my profession, but, but learning more and trying to fix problems uh, with, with the races in our country has become my obsession
0: well and and i think that uh that's a pretty good obsession to go after because um without people like you in the world i don't i don't i think we lose a lot of education that way without people um willing to put themselves out there like you do because you really put yourself out there not only with your own race but with uh people that are we talked about it in the last one people that are determined to hate you no matter what and so when you do those things what i think is interesting though in talking to you and and all the times that we have talked to each other how much music has bridged that gap for you um indeed indeed Indeed. and, and and it's amazing to me you know when you talk about the first guy that you met in the in the kkk and you know and and he watched you and he said, I've never heard anyone play like that. And uh, you got into a, a discussion about Jerry Lee Lewis and all those kind of things and how you showed him that there is another way than the way you think. So music really has bridged that gap. So you not only took that degree from, from college in music, but you kind of made it into a world environment.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, as a musician, my, my uh, and, and not only just a musician, I have my own band in other people's bands, you know, people that I've worked with, uh, I'm a sideman unless they want me to, to be the band director or something like that. But in my own band, I am the band leader. And as a band leader, it's my job to bring harmony to all the voices on my stage, whether they are vocal voices or instrumental voices, in other words, the singers, the saxophone, piano, bass, drums, guitar, whatever I have on that stage. I want harmony between them. The only time that I want dissonance is, with, is uh, when I intentionally uh, inject it into the music for effect. Otherwise, if there's some dissonance that happens randomly while I'm playing, you know, it, it's not music; it's noise. Somebody right. hit, you know hit a bad note or sang a wrong note or something. Uh, so, naturally, if if I seek harmony on my stage, when the gig is over and I step off the stage and i'm going through society i w- i want harmony there too i don't have to fight everybody you know down down on the street or whatever i want harmony amongst people just like i want on my stage so so music i guess has has put that in me and that's how i carry myself even even through life and that's how i survive
0: and so when you were young you know on the last show we talked about when you were younger and things that kind of pushed you in the direction of how you spent your life and your obsession what really pushed you into the musical field to go to college to you know some people go to college to be doctors whatever you went specifically to be a musician
1: yes i did and i'll tell you (laughs) it's kind of of an interesting story um as a kid i was obsessed with uh, james bond i wanted to be james bond And I still have my 007 briefcase that I got as a kid. You know, you push the handle and it fires plastic bullets. I got my my 007 decoder belt. It's probably worth a lot of money these days. It probably is. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I was going to be James Bond. I was fascinated with espionage, but I was equally fascinated with computers. And at that time, you know, I'm 62 years old now. But, you know, as a kid, you know, uh, 10, 11, 12, uh, computers would take up your whole house, right? They were humongous, and uh, I knew there was money to be had in computers. I never dreamed, you know, they'd become as small as a, as a cell phone, and you know they're they're getting smaller by the day. Uh, but I knew there was money to be had, so each vocation was pulling at me with equal force. So I was I was immobilized, stuck in the middle, because you know it was equal force on either side, hmm. and uh, I, so th- this went on throughout. My, uh, my teenage years. And uh, I was coming into uh, 11th grade in, uh, in high school, and you, know, you gotta start thinking about you know, what you're gonna do in college. Right. And um, I kept trying to figure out how can I, or oh, well, which, which one am I gonna be? Well, each one, as I said, pulled equally. And so I tried to figure out how could I combine these two and have a career in both computers and in uh, spying. Well, back then, there was no way to combine them both. Of course, today you can do that. It's called cyber espionage. But that term did not exist back in, uh I was a junior in 1975 because I graduated in 76. So, you know, that, that term didn't even exist, cyber espionage. And so I, I thought about people that I admired. You know, who who were some of my idols? And almost instantly, two names just popped in my head. I'm not kidding you. Uh, one was Elvis Presley and the other one was Chuck Berry. Now, I never played music other than my record player. I was not a musician. I could not play an instrument or anything like that, Uh, but I I loved music. And uh, the reason that they popped in my head, what I thought about them was, these two people had made millions upon millions of other people all over the world happy with their music. They had touched them, people that they would never meet. Most people never met Elvis Presley or met Chuck Berry. Uh, you know, but they certainly heard their music, and if they were lucky enough, you know, maybe they saw them on TV, or if they were really lucky, you know, they got to see them in concert, live performance. But 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 uh, but very few actually came within contact of them. And so my dream was, um, I want to play music, you know, I, I want to make people happy. So my first goal was to to see those guys, see those see those guys perform. And uh, when they came around, I got tickets. I went and saw them. My my next then my my dream became bigger. Okay, now I want to meet them. <laughs> you know well, that's a little harder because you know, they, <laughs> yeah. they got a buffer between them and the audience and you know and fans. And so, but I accomplished that. I met I met each of them, and um and then my goal became you know what I want to play with these guys. So I never got to play with Elvis uh, because he died in 1977, the year after I graduated high school, my first year of college um but i got to play with his band uh after his death and the Jordanaires, right the Jordanaires. i've played with uh, james burton uh his uh, his last guitar player and uh other people uh in tribute shows uh to uh, to elvis uh, J- uh james burton was working with uh, jerry lee lewis when i uh when i played with him i you know i i, I did i did numerous gigs with uh, jerry lee lewis uh, I was on I was Chuck Berry's piano player. So sometimes it would be Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis or uh uh Little Richard B on the show, Chubby Checker, different people. Yeah, there's a young there's a young Jerry Lee and a young me. <laughs> back when I had hair on my head and I was about a hundred <laughs> so pounds left. <laughs> Don't we all wish we could go back there? I'm trying. I'm trying. Like <laughs> but uh anyway um, so you know I got to meet a lot of different people and um, I played with Chuck for 32 years uh, you know before he died um, not all his gigs but you know but a lot of them mostly east Coast and and some in in the uh, in the midwest. Uh, so that you know that was that was my dream to, to make people happy. and I tell you I would much rather be on stage playing some some rock and roll or some boogie woogie or whatever. Then, yeah, and seeing people dance on the dance floor in front of me rather than be at some rally ground seeing a cross of flame and people marching around you know proclaiming some kind of supremacy or something. Um, but that also has to has to be done you know, that has to be addressed. and as you pointed out earlier, you know the power of music um, you, put, you pointed out the example of the man I was playing in a bar one night with a country band. And a man approached me right after I uh, finished the first set, taking a break with the band. And he says to me that this was the first time he ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> and I thought, you know, and this guy was older than me. I mean, he was like 15, 18 years older than me. And I was I, I, was not offended, but I was surprised that he didn't know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's style of piano playing. And I explained to him that I learned it from the same place, you know, Jerry Lee did from black blues boogie-woogie piano players. That's where that rockabilly rock and roll style came from. And he was incredulous. He didn't believe me even after I told him, you know, I know Jerry Lee. He's told me himself where he learned. And he didn't believe that either. But he was fascinated enough with me that he invited me back to his table and, and bought me a drink. And um, then he said this was the first time he ever sat down with a black man. And um, when I asked why, it later came out that he finally admitted he was a member of the KKK. So that's the power of music. That you know that is the power of music. And I mean, think about it like this. Okay, so you know we're we're on kind of a semi-lockdown now. We're like in phase two or something, right? Um, so ordinarily, if if uh, it's Friday night, chances are I, I would be playing somewhere. But um, if uh, if I was off and I wanted to go dancing, for example. I might go down to a club that either features a DJ or features a band and, and you know, dance. And uh, so let's say I go to the club and the dance floor is full. There's a good song on. I want to dance. I'm going to look around and see if I see a single lady who's, who's unattached, who might want to dance with me. And I see some lady sitting at the bar and she's patting her hand on the bar in time to the music. So obviously she likes that song, too. I don't know her, but I'm going to walk over And say hey you know would you would you like to dance she says sure hops off her bar stool we go to the dance floor and we're dancing now i don't know this woman and if it's a slow song we're like this wrapped around each other and slowly turning around on the floor and i don't even know her right if it's a fast song you know we're apart we're shaking you know whatever and then at the end of the uh, song i escort her back to her seat and i say hey you know i'm my name's daryl davis and she says you know my name is mary smith or whatever and um, I said, so what do you do, Mary? And she says, well, I'm, I'm vice president of uh, the East Coast Division of Microsoft. Oh my goodness, <laughs> and she's making half a million dollars a year, right? And she says, so what do you do, Daryl? And I say, well, <laughs> I'm a cashier at McDonald's. Well, you know, I'm, I'm making what, like $9,000 a year maybe? Um, where would two people that far apart, you know, social, economically, come that close. Music, music brings you together. If you work for a computer company or you work for a bank and you have a party, everybody at your party will either be all all computer type people, programmers, IT, software, hardware, computer sales, you know all that kind of stuff. That will be the bulk of your party or it'll be all banking people, the tellers, the branch managers, the auditors, etc. But when you go to hear music, Everybody is there. The computer people, the bankers, uh, the restaurateurs are there. School teachers, the cashier at the grocery store, the guy who picks up your trash on Saturday mornings, the guy who paints the W line down the street, uh, etc. Everybody's there because everybody likes music, and that's why the Klansman was there because he liked music too. So music does have that power, and and we have only um, tapped the tip of the iceberg as to how important music is in our lives. And I'm not saying this because I am a musician. I'm saying this because it's true. Uh, music is considered to be a luxury in this country, not a necessity. It is indeed a necessity. Absolutely. And unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, every time you know there's an economic downturn and budgets get cut, the first thing to go in our school system, arts are the arts. Exactly, uh, academics are kept. Obviously, sports are kept. That's good too, but music and the arts are cut, and that's very unfortunate. Because you know we rely on that. It teaches us so much that we don't even realize. Um, we learn how to, how to work with each other by playing instruments, ensemble, playing our parts, and then and they all blend together and create the whole song that's us learning how to work with other people. And music is a conversation. When somebody else is soloing, the other players are accompanying. And then the soloist will accompany while somebody else solos. You know, we learn how to work together. Um, it also teaches you creativity. You know, if you're sad, you can create a sad song. You learn how to play minor chords. If you're happy, or you're in love, whatever, you can write a love song that's happy, major chords, this, set and the other. You want to. Create something that's ominous and scary. You start using diminished chords, all these kinds of things. Uh, I will guarantee you that, uh, or you know, if you're angry, rather than go out, you know, and shoot guns and stuff, um, you you can get on your guitar, or your piano, or whatever, and compose an angry melody. Just get you know, get it all out through music. I will guarantee you, none of those kids um, who shot up Columbine High School, or Sandy Hook, or Virginia Tech. Or or any of those other schools where you had these mass school shootings, none of those students were involved in the arts. You know, you got guys in trench coats during the summertime going out in the woods and, and shooting up places and doing all these video games. Music is a necessity. When you drive to work and you're stuck in traffic, what are you doing? You listen to music on the radio to kill time. You're jogging down some path, you got your earbuds in, you know, bopping so you know. You're not, you're not focusing on your running because you get tired and you stop. You just keep on listening to that music, keep on going. Right? You know, you're ironing clothes. You listen to music. It's a necessity. Uh, when people get off work and they go to happy hour, they go somewhere. There might be a solo person playing the guitar, just you know, setting the mood in the bar or whatever. Uh, in the um, in the 1980s, a lot of corporations and companies they 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 uh, they brought in gurus to teach their employees how to meditate and gave them mantras uh, and taught them yoga and things like that in order to to have them rejuvenate themselves and be more productive employees. And that worked. That worked. In the 90s, these same corporations decided to you know, try another approach. They gave their members uh, memberships. I mean, their, their employees' memberships to, to gyms so they could go and work out. And that made them more productive. Music is the same thing. It's a de-stressor but it also teaches you how to work together ensemble with other people, whether it's an orchestra, a duo, or, or a trio, or just a small combo. We learn how to work together and it's a necessity. So that's why I'm such a big advocate for it. And as you saw in, in the real life example of myself and the Klansmen, it was music that brought us together. Otherwise he never would have approached me unless he wanted to throw me out of there or something. But, uh, and, and the hypothetical example I gave you where, you know, we go somewhere, and and we like a song, and we see some somebody else who likes the song, and we get together and dance. You know, that's the importance of it. Well, you know, you bring up an
0: an important point when you talk about music, and music has for a long time had kind of a stigma attached to it. Uh, and I'm speaking about all the times where they said that that music made people do things. What what are your thoughts on that? Because you were just talking about bringing people together, music being essential. You have another group of people that say that certain types of music or certain lyrics or or beats or whatever
1: drive people to do things. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, music can cause people to dance, that's for sure. It can cause (laughs) people to get up out of their chair, but uh, there are also other properties of of music that... um, that are are employed, and as I, as I said, you know, we're just barely touching the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's still a new um, science called music therapy, and when I was in college majoring in music, you know, they offered a, a degree in music therapy, and even, you know, even then it was even more newer than it is today. Uh, they play certain types of music in the psych ward uh, in hospitals or, or sanitariums to keep people calm, you know, calm them down. You, you know, you don't use diminished chords because diminished chords will not resolve. You Use chords that resolve, and that re- that eases the mind. Um, they use them in jails. You've heard of dentist office music, which is like really boring, you know, it's like elevator music. Right? Elevator music, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's called elevator music. It's also called dentist office music. It's the same music. Or they play elevator music or dentist office music in the dentist. You know, when you're there getting, you know, getting drilled in your mouth, you know, they're not playing heavy metal because it would freak you out. (laughs) So they play that elevator. I I gotta say though, I would like to see that one time, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're you're a sadist. So (laughs) (laughs) so they play that that elevator music in the dentist office to keep you calm. It has that soothing effect on you because, of course, you're going to be nervous. Some guy with a needle and a drill in your mouth. What happens if he misses? You know, you're conjuring up all that could go wrong even though right. this guy's an expert right but uh, just that fear that music you know lets you calm down and sometimes they play certain kinds of music to to, to irritate and aggravate uh, and make people become aggressive like maybe in you know in uh, in war zones they blast certain things or whatever uh, that will do it too so there are different properties of music that can that can shift someone's mood and uh, don't think for one second when you go to the mall and you hear all that music in the speakers, that is programmed in there. And there's certain things that you know that will induce shopping or put you in the mood to, to shop and things like that. So there's a lot of strategy behind it and we've just touched the tip of the iceberg. Um, yeah, so a lot of people back, especially in the 50s, um, well, let's go back beyond, uh, before the 50s, let's say the 1940s and stuff, music halls, concert venues, were segregated. If they allowed Black people into the building at all, there were ropes going around seating sections with signs hanging down. And these signs would either say seating for white patrons only or colored seating only. And you did not cross sit. You sat in your seating section as designated by the color of your skin. So if you and I, what you'll say in the 1940s, went to go see uh, Frank Sinatra, or the Glenn Miller Orchestra, or the, or the uh, Benny Goodman Orchestra, something like that. You and I could not sit together. That was the law. And just like Rosa Parks and the bus, that was the law. She didn't give up, you know, give up her seat uh, because she was too far forward. They arrested her and booked her. That was the law. And so the same law applied in these uh, venues. We had to sit in our sections. And um, people pretty much obeyed the law. And there weren't any problems, but these two phenomena happened in the 1950s. One was the invention of rock and roll by black artists such as Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Bo Diddley, and others, and the popularization of this uh, of this new music by by white artists such as Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley and the Comets, Carl Perkins and many, many others. And what was happening was this, you know, black radio stations. Well, looks like we lost him for a second. Let's see if we can get him back. Your your wattage and broadcast all over the place. We lost you for just a second.
0: Can you go back? Uh, You froze up for just a second. Okay, do you remember what I was saying? uh well you were talking about uh the popularization through the white artists like elvis presley jerry lee lewis and you were going on right after that
1: okay so yeah so also the the, uh the music that that black people created was also performed by white artists and popularized by elvis presley jerry lee lewis carl perkins buddy holly bill Haley, in the Comets, and uh, many many others and the reason it became so popular amongst um white people was the fact that two things. One, black music was was not played on white radio stations, except for very few. And and those disc jockeys who would play uh, black music on the white stations would often uh, face consequences for it. Uh, Alan Freed was one of those guys who uh, who got into a lot of trouble for that. He also got in trouble for payola uh, as well. But uh, there were a lot of other ones who were involved in payola too. Uh, Dick Clark was involved in that, you know, the legendary. Dick For Clark. people
0: that might not know, can you explain that a little? The payola.
1: Yeah, payola is is an illegal thing. It's uh, paying a a disc jockey or radio personality to to play your record, because what happens is, you know, in order to have a hit record, people have to buy it, and back in the day, uh, you know, you couldn't just download it from. Uh, iTunes or someplace you you heard it on the radio and if you liked the song you know you got up out of your seat you got in your car and you headed down to the to the local uh, you know record record store and you purchased the record and the standard back then was a gold record today is a platinum record you know a hundred thousand or a million copies sold. So in order to, for, for an artist to become famous and and have a mega hit it had to be heard on the radio. And so one of the ways to ensure it being heard on the radio was to slip the, uh, the disc jockey uh, some money and, uh, or some other favors or whatever, that was, which is illegal. And that was known as payola you know, because he, he, was, he was engaging in favoritism uh, in exchange for money, well, which is why today, you know, uh, uh, radio disc jockeys, you have to make a note of all the songs that they play, how many times they play, they're only allowed to play them once an hour, you know, whatever the regulations are. Okay, so um, there were a lot of them who were engaging in that. Uh, some could get away with it. Some, some did not get away with it. And uh, Alan Freed uh, did not get away with it, particularly because he, uh, he played a lot of black music on his white radio station. Uh, there were TV shows like American Bandstand. And um, at, uh, Alan Freed was one of the promoters of these concerts that uh where where black kids would hear the uh, black kids and white kids would hear this rock and roll music coming from elvis or chuck or whoever and for the first time in history they broke the laws instead of remaining in their seating section they could not sit still to this new beat because before rock and roll the previous form of music was a swing big band swing in, out of the 1940s right and swing beat is, Now they're hearing, boom, boom, bop, boom, boom, bop, boom, boom, bop. You know, it makes you want to get up and move. So they couldn't sit still. Black kids and white kids alike bounced up out of their chairs, knocking over the ropes and the signs. And the next thing you know, they were dancing and boogieing in the aisles together for the first time in the history of this country. And the establishment did not know what to make of this. The police would come in, pull the plugs out of the wall that show was over, that concert was done uh, because kids were race mixing and that was illegal. And because, because think about it like this, you know, these kids, these black kids and white kids who were dancing together did not even know each other. They had never even met before because what we're talking the 50s, schools were segregated. They didn't go to school together. You know, they they didn't know each other. And usually there's a railroad track going through the center of town. You know, black, fam- black families live on one side of the tracks, whites on the other side of the tracks. So they don't, you know, they're aware of each other, of course, but they don't engage. And here they are engaging in this music. So of course that uh, created room for, for conspiracies. You know, this rock and roll is a communist plot. It's, it's designed to, to, right. to corrupt uh, white youth. You know, and, and everybody knew it was created by black people because white people were singing, how much is that doggy in the window? And, and black people were saying, blah, 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 you know, all this other kind of crazy kind of music. So, you know, black, black musicians were corrupting white youth. And that also led to why the establishment did not like Elvis Presley. Um, let's talk about Elvis for a second here. Elvis Presley was a very, very talented uh, white singer. musical artist but he started out as a truck driver and he um sam phillips of sun records in memphis tennessee had had his had his own record company recording was called phillips recording service They changed it to sun records sam was a white guy he loved uh black music he loved the blues he felt it and that was his kind of music he recorded a lot of the blues acts of the day People you never even heard of, and now they become famous, like B.B. King, uh, Rufus Thomas, Pinetop Perkins, a lot of these guys. But he could not make a lot of money, again, because white stations would not play the records. And the black stations that would play the records, they only have a low wattage. So they only had power to broadcast maybe around the neighborhood, where the white stations had a lot more wattage, they could broadcast all the way across the state and across the state lines into other states. So they, they had a wider audience. More people would buy records from listening to the white station because it was a, more people. And so Sam Phillips thought to himself and said, he made the, he made the comment, "If I can find a white man with that Negro sound, I could make a I, I could make a million dollars." And so he was out uh, distributing his records to record stores one day when Elvis Presley came into the uh, recording service to record a song for his mother. It was called "My Happiness," an old song put out by the Ink Spots, and I think Al Jolson also did a version of it in the 1920s or something. Ink Spots did it in the 40s. So it's one of his mother's favorite songs. He recorded it, and the receptionist uh, Marion Kesker was was sitting there, and she heard Elvis's voice and had to check and see that that he was it was really a white guy singing like this because he sounded black. And so when uh, she took down his name and number. And when Sam Phillips came back, she said, I found the guy for you, the perfect guy. He's a white guy, has that sound. And now the story goes, Sam called him immediately. That's that's not how it went. Uh, Sam, you know, put it off about three months or so and and she kept reminding him. And then finally he called uh, Elvis. And Elvis came in and sang a bunch of uh, bluegrass songs and Sam wasn't feeling it. So he told them to take a break and they took a break And Elvis was just beating around on his guitar, singing an old black blues song called That's All Right Mama. And Sam said, that's it, and turned on the uh, recorder. I started recording it and made them do it again and again. That's what I want. And that became Elvis's first record. It was an old song by Arthur Big Boy Crudup, a a, a blues singer. And so Elvis put out That's All Right Mama. And um, when Sam gave it to one of the very few disc jockeys who would, white disc jockeys, who would play black music he played it kids went crazy uh this guy's name was dewey phillips no relation to sam phillips um big disc jockey in a, in a memphis he had to play the song 17 times in a row because kids kept calling in to play that song wow. yeah well, now you know, this was this was normal in in, in black neighborhoods I, you know, that's that's what they listened to but it was not normal in the white neighborhoods well kids were going crazy and parents are going crazy too you know they wanted to get that stuff off of there and they would call into the station and complain you know how can you play that so-and-so on 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 the station get him off of there and so dewey knew that elvis was white but the parents did not they thought he was black so dewey called elvis's home and to to have elvis come into the station and elvis was, was at the movies with his girlfriend and so one of his parents or whatever went down to the theater got elvis out of the movie theater sent him down to the radio station and live on air. uh, You can can also find this on YouTube, um, the audio of it. Dewey interviewed Elvis. And he says, you know, so Elvis, you know, you put out this new record. It's your first record. Yes, sir. "Um, How old are you, Elvis? I'm 19, sir. And so uh, what high high school did you go to, Elvis? I went to Humes High School. That right there was 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 the key because Humes High School, of course, was all white. So that let the parents who are listening know that this artist that Dewey is playing is white without coming out and saying, "Uh, Elvis, you're a white guy or anything like that. It let the parents know. So I
0: found that uh, I want you to keep talking, but I actually found that interview. So we'll play a little bit of it, but keep uh, keep saying what you were. Sure.
1: So that, that calmed the parents down just a little bit, at least, you know, it's a white guy. Uh, you know why? You know why he's why he's playing this black such and such music. You know we don't know, all right. But uh, at least he's white. And then of course um, their their ire skyrocketed when um, <laughs> when uh, when he got on TV and started uh, dancing, shaking his hips. Yeah, shaking those hips just like you saw black people do down on Beale Street in Memphis. That's how they dance. And um, you know they complained so much. That he got kicked off of TV. But the demand was so high by these kids, you know, their children, that uh, they had to bring him back on TV, but they only filmed him from the waist up. Hmm. That you know.
0: It, it, it's amazing to me that first they were mad because they thought it was a certain thing. Then they heard that, then they calmed down. Then they see him on TV, <laughs> they go crazy again. It's like the it's like the guy can't win. Let's uh let's take a listen. Real quick, we pulled this off of YouTube. Uh, Let's take a real quick listen to this. Okay. Well, you know what? Hold on. Let's see if we can. All right. Okay, here we go. Okay. I know, gonna you to a, while, a mouse, um, through the front come, send uh, you from red, hot, and I got a new song we're gonna play here, we're gonna cut loose, this new cut, this new song. Well, that's alright, mama. That's alright for you. That's alright, mama. Just
1: any way you do it.
0: I got to tell you something um, that really doesn't sound very rock and rollish to me, anything like that. It really reminds me of like a, a
1: Hank Williams senior or uh, am I way off on that? No, you're not off at all. Uh, it's not a rock and roll song. It's the blues. And, and let's talk about Hank Williams senior. Okay. Uh, Hank Williams senior. Now he's known as the father of country music. However, I will tell you. Hank Williams, Sr. is a blues singer. I I consider him to be a blues singer because he sings from the heart. He sings from the soul. He sings from the gut. He sings with feeling. The only thing that separates uh, Hank Williams, Sr. uh, is is that he's white. He sings with a twang in his voice. Um, But country music and blues music are kissing cousins. They're the same three chords. All right. And Hank Williams Sr. learned to play the guitar from a black street blues guitar player, a guy who would sit on the streets of Montgomery, Alabama, where Hank Williams is from, a black guy. His name was uh, Rufus T-Tot Payne, P-A-Y-N-E. And he played the blues on the guitar. And Hank was fascinated by that as, as a young boy, as a teenager. And he would give He'd bring sandwiches from home and give Rufus sandwiches in exchange for guitar lessons. Uh, Hank Williams Sr.'s uh, son, Hank Williams Jr., wrote, Bo a, song. Yeah, Bo Cephas, exactly. wrote a song about uh, Rufus T-Tot Payne. It's called T-Tot. And um, he talked about, about his father's uh, influence of T-Tot. And if you listen to Hank's songs, you know, You're Cheating Heart, You Win Again, Love, sick blues, move it on over. Moving on over is a straight up blues. A straight up blues. Came home last night about a half past ten. Baby of mine, she wouldn't let me in. Moving on over. Well, George Thorogood redid it. George Thorogood redid it in a rock and roll fashion. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, there's even been doo wop uh, uh, versions of that song, you know. But uh, Hank Williams wrote it and recorded it first. It was his song. But it's a blues. It's a blues. So is your cheating heart. They're just a three-chord blues, and you know, to me, Patsy Klein was a blues singer. Um, uh, Mother Maybelle Carter. I had the pleasure of meeting her one time a long time ago. I went to see Johnny Cash, and uh, June Carter was there, and her sisters, and uh, and her mom, Mother Maybelle, who who was a legendary uh, figure in country music. Uh, she adopted her style from a black uh, guitar player who taught her. His name was Leslie Riddle, R-I-D-D-L-E. Leslie Riddle taught Mother Maybell how to play the style of guitar playing that made her uh, so famous. And uh, so you know, there's a lot of connections there that that society separates us. You know, we borrow from each other's music, and um, and combine things. You know that we that we that we do. We hear things, we borrow them, we learn from one another. But society divides us. And you know, if you go to the record store, if you want to find a, a record by Hank Williams. You go to the record store. Where do you have to look? You have to look at country, country section. Country. Yeah, country mm-hmm. section. You know, you want you want a record by by uh, Van Halen. You know, you go to the rock section. And- but
0: you know, and, and and talking about them, Van Halen. If we look when when David Lee Roth was the lead singer of Van Halen, mm-hmm. a lot of covers and a lot of making those, those songs their own. Yes,
1: absolutely. And, and,
0: and it, it got so bad as cover. I saw something with Eddie Van Halen uh, that it got so bad that he was worried that they would become the most famous cover band in the world. They were covering so many different types of songs.
1: Yeah. But, you know, but the thing of it is that they did it in a unique style. Yeah, very much course, so. You no, know, he had a unique way of playing the guitar. And David Lee Roth, you know, was a very unique singer. Yeah. Uh, indeed. Um, but you'd find their music in the rock section. You know, you find James Brown in the uh, soul or R&B section. Now, you know, if you go to France or something like that and you want to find um, James Brown, you just go to the B section and, and and go to BR and OWN and you find James Brown. But he's in the same bin with Beethoven and Brahms and Bach. You know, uh, Presley is, is in the same bin with uh, Puccini and whoever else's name begins with a P. Right, uh, you know, yeah, you know. So Chuck Berry is in the same bin, in the B bin, uh, because it's all mixing together. But we over here, we categorize and pigeonhole and put people, you know, compartmentalize them, instead of letting it just be music, you know that you know that we all can share and enjoy and like rather than separate it.
0: So, let me ask you something, Daryl. we we talked about, you know, when all of this happens, and we see the white musicians and we see the music where kids can't control themselves. They come out, they're dancing. everyone is mixing together. I think of Ray Charles in the stuff that he did, where he kind of stood up to those kind of things, said, "I won't play certain venues, things like that. Can you speak to that a little more because, you've been in that world so you would know you know we see what we see in the movies what we hear in you know biographies and documentaries but it seemed to me like he kind of stood up for that too where he felt that everyone needed to be together to hear his music because he incorporated everything orchestras i mean he
1: was he was very good at changing the game ray charles the best way to describe him you know you've heard the term you know jack of all trades Mm master of none. Absolutely. Right. Ray Charles was a master of all trades. And I remember reading a uh, an interview with, uh, I think it was Owen Bradley, who was a major, major country music producer from way back, produced everybody. Anyway, uh, this young kid, this is like in the 1980s or something. I read this in the late 80s. This young kid uh, was sent to interview Owen Bradley, who was producing this uh, album coming out by Ray Charles and Ray Charles was doing duets on this album with Merle Haggard, George Jones, Willie Nelson. Um, I think he recorded what seven Spanish angels with a uh, Willie Nelson or somebody and uh, all these great country duets. And uh, so this young writer for some Nashville newspaper was interviewing the producer. And uh, he said, you know, how do you feel that that Ray Charles will do, you know, doing country music? Obviously, this kid was too young to remember or know that Ray Charles had a gold country album in the 60s. And you, know, you point out those orchestras you know that he put on there with your cheating heart. And mm-hmm. he went again. And hey, hey, good looking. And all those great songs that he did. And he just he owned them. You know, he did them his own way. Right. And it, it, it made number one on the country charts. Uh anyway, he so he you know, so not knowing this, this young guy he, okay who had not done his homework said to, said to the producer you know how you think Ray Charles will will uh, will fit in with this country and the producer said something that i think is the best description of Ray Charles he said Ray Charles is like an elephant he can sit wherever he wants <laughs> and that is the truth but yeah, yeah you know Ray Charles um Chuck Berry and Little Richard both uh all three of them uh got to the point where they would not perform uh on you know if if the audiences were going to be segregated in fact um even in the uh, 70s uh elvis presley had uh had a gig at the houston astrodome and the the stage is set out in the middle of the field so everybody's all the way around and it's sold out you know how big the astrodome is and elvis could sell it out and so uh the deal was elvis El, you know the band is going to be on stage and um and elvis is going going to be driven in a uh, Cadillac, out to the stage, I guess from the dugout or somewhere, um, out to the stage, and you know, get on stage and, and perform. And so, uh, earlier, the promoter of that show uh, said he You know, Elvis could not perform with with the uh, black girls on stage. Uh, Elvis had had some some black singers known as the Sweet Inspirations, uh, which was a Sissy Houston's group, and Sissy Houston was the mother of uh, of Whitney Houston. And so that was her group that sang Backup for Elvis, and uh, the female vocalist. And Elvis said, no, you know, um, I don't perform without them. He said, well, our audience wouldn't like it, blah, blah, blah. Elvis said, I'm not going to do it unless I have them. And so the guy finally had to consent to it. Otherwise, he had to refund, you know, 30,000 people their money or whatever. And so not only did Elvis uh, ride out in the Cadillac, he he had the girls sit in the Cadillac with him and ride out there you know that's you know that's what he did cuz you know he didn't care um we, i mentioned uh, right off the air before we started uh Wanda Jackson mm-hmm. from uh from Oklahoma um she got her start singing country music and uh Elvis came to Oklahoma i think it was Tulsa somewhere and performed she met him and they began dating he became she became his girlfriend she you know, she's was, she's was a great uh country songwriter and rock and roll songwriter and he encouraged her to do rockabilly and she wrote, she wrote a bunch of songs, Right or Wrong is one of her songs. She wrote the song, Let's Have a Party, and put it out first. Uh, and then uh, Elvis recorded that song, Let's Have a Party. It became a hit for him. It was also put in one of his movies. Uh, what was the name of that movie? I can't think of it. It'll, it'll come to me in a second. But some people like to rock, some people like to roll. Moving on a group is gonna satisfy my soul. Let's have a party. You know, that's, that, that's a Wanda Jackson song. She wrote it. And uh, anyway um she had a band with a black piano player who would later become a good friend of mine his name was big al downing and uh big al downing was a rock and roll piano player played in the style of like fast domino and stuff and then in later years uh, he lived near nearby here where where i live now i got to meet him uh he'd gone he'd gone into country music had a big hit uh called please come and get me mr jones and then uh he went into r&b and stuff and he later passed away But anyway, Wanda. Jackson was way ahead of her time because she would face those same things. She'd come to a club that was that hired her with her band and they told her uh, she had to get a white piano player uh, to play and she said, no, she would not play unless uh, big Alk could play with her. And so you know, they had to, to, to let her play because people are there to see Wanda Jackson. So I, you know, I really really have a lot of respect for her and I gave her a, I, I gave her a, an award. I was in charge of a music camp out on the west coast a few years back and i brought wanda jackson in there to perform and to tell her stories and stuff and i got to work with her and gave her a nice award uh, and then later about two years later or so she was she got into the rock and roll hall of fame um she was ahead of her time in many regards she's a white woman singing black music rock and roll rockabilly and she's defying the establishment as a woman defying the establishment saying she's going, she's not going to perform on stage unless this black piano player can be on stage with her. It's one thing for a white guy to say that. But well, but don't you think she was
0: defying the institution by being a woman in rock and roll?
1: Yes, absolutely. At that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, she, that, That's why I honored her, you know, but uh, even before her, you know, there were others, Benny Goodman, for example, um, had, had a black, uh, uh, First, he had a black guitar player named Charlie Christian, and he faced that same thing where he said he would not play unless Charlie could be there. And then later, he had a black piano player, jazz piano player named Teddy Wilson, and then he had Lionel Hampton, the great Lionel Hampton on vibes. Um, you know all these, or, you know, black guys playing with him. Um, Jimmy Durante, you remember Jimmy Durante? Okay, so he signed too, you know, and he liked the feel that 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 uh, that black musicians had. It, it fit his music. He he could feel that, and so he hired a bunch of black musicians to play with them in his band. And when he would face those things, he would tell the club owners, "No, no, 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 no. They're not black. They're Hawaiians," <laughs> and they would get in. <laughs> so I mean, you know, these are things that that a lot of people, you know, kids today don't don't realize. Um, you know, when when they go to to concerts you know with their friends of different colors whether it's a black guy you know going with a white guy or or vice versa to a concert to go see whoever there was a time when they could not sit together you know we don't think about those things today but this is what people had to go through and rock and roll is what changed all that because the the jazz artists you know people didn't jump out of their chairs and start dancing with each other then or the big band artists they did it to rock and roll and so that goes back to your point about you know Do do the beats and anything have anything to do with it? The beat has something to do with it, but the beat has nothing to do with your um, becoming a a racist or a non-racist or breaking racial codes. It just has to do with how the body feels. And and you know you would dance with anybody if 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 you're so moved by the music and you dance with your dog. The dog was there.
0: So in in talking about all this and talking about everything that has kind of transferred over. We talked about Ray Charles a little bit and all these people that transition between all these different genres of music. Uh w- Once again, talking about Ray Charles, like gospel to country and Western to R and B to, and we see that throughout. Who do you think has done that the best or who do you think has left the best legacy of, and I understand how you feel about Ray Charles, taking him out of the equation. Who do you think Otherwise, best exemplifies that. That has just crossed all of those boundaries, all of those different types of music.
1: Wow, no one can compare to Ray Charles in terms of of, of so many the 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 breadth of of uh, of genre. Absolutely, but but who has left um, indelible impressions and marks on on our music that have brought people together? You know, certainly Elvis Presley, certainly Chuck Berry, certainly B.B. King um the rolling stones well you know who i was going to say johnny cash johnny cash
0: uh, and, johnny and cash the reason the blue singer folsom prison blues is a blues absolutely and the reason i i say him is because you saw towards the end of his life when he started making all the albums with Rick Rubin and mm-hmm. uh, he made like four American, I think it's called American songs or American dream, something like that. He kind of crossed all over that. He was doing like Nine Inch Nails songs on yeah. there. Uh, he, he was doing all those things. And I was very impressed at, at the age that he was at because he was in a very advanced age when he made these last albums, uh, how he was able to still cross over. And make that music kind of his own because he made it sound different than than everyone he was covering. And, yeah. and he got really religious in the end, too, and started yeah. making a lot of religious songs.
1: And, uh, you know, you can uh, also a little piece of uh, history. You know, Johnny Cash, before he married uh, June Carter, uh, he was married to a black woman. Oh, and really? Yes, he was. And the Ku Klux Klan got on him about that and started breaking up all his records and all that kind of stuff and tried to get him banned off the radio um he or his team or whatever uh, tried to pass her off as a filipino and um you know they eventually you know divorced uh there, you know there was a lot of um you know i guess uh, just too much stress uh from from that at the time but uh you know google johnny Cash's you, know, you can google her right now and put up a picture of her and let the audience decide. Just Google Johnny Cash's first wife and then click on images. But uh, she, you know, she, she's definitely a black woman, and um, and you can Google Johnny Cash and the Klan or whatever. Um, you know, they knew and they and they did not like it and they did, and they stopped supporting him. And I um, said, you know, that's how it was, and so so they tried to, to spin it. As a, as she was a Filipino, like like Jimmy Durante tried to spin it, that these black musicians were uh, Hawaiians. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to bring this one up. Uh, we'll make it its own picture. So I'm thinking this is her right here. Is that correct? Yeah, that's her. yeah, uh, Vivian uh, Liberto. That's her. I, I can, I can, yeah, I can kind of see Filipino. Uh, that's what they tried to pass her off, right? Yeah. I, I can kind of see that she's a light-skinned black woman uh i mean you know it, it sounds like they well, uh she's not white it, it, definitely
1: yeah <laughs> In the 1950s come on <laughs> yeah definitely
0: so um you know going back to this where we talk about all these different people have left their uh mark I just want to go through some of the people that you've played with and, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of them, but in all the research I did, uh, you played with Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley's Jordanaires, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Platters, the Drifters, the Coasters, Bo Diddley, Percy Sledge, Sam Moore. Am I missing any?
1: No, you're doing pretty good there. Okay.
0: <laughs> uh, it, it's amazing to me, all of these different uh, groups. and And I would even say that the music is all, fundamentally the same between these guys but but there are very um you're stretching on some of them um and even pine top perkins and johnny johnson both claimed you to be their godson yeah so i mean you cover let's not let's not sleep on how much you have influenced music
1: no it's more uh, how much music has influenced me
0: okay so let's talk about
1: that then yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I try to I try to pass it on to others, uh, teaching them and teaching, you know, things to do, things not to do. Uh, you know, I went to college and got a degree formally, uh, but I also learned informally from Pine Top Perkins and Johnny Johnson both uh, as you pointed out, you know, claim me as your godson. Um I wanted to play with Chuck Berry. Well, so does everybody. You know, and so why was I chosen out of a million piano players? Uh, that can that can play rings around me. Why was I you know, get, you know how did I get the gig? Um, by being persistent and and what I heard on on the records, you know when I listened to Roll Over Beethoven or Sweet Little Sixteen or Nadine or Maybelline, I heard the, you know this piano going on in there. So I thought, well, you know if I can learn to play piano like that, then maybe I can get a gig with Chuck Berry. So what did I do? I found out who that piano player was. He was Johnny Johnson, and so I got a hold of Johnny Johnson and had him teach me how to do that. You know, that's what you got to do. You know, you got to go back to the roots, and you got you got to learn the blues because where did rock and roll come from? There was no rock and roll before Chuck Berry. So what was he hearing? He was hearing blues and country and boogie woogie. So I had to listen to what he listened to, and then you discover, you know, he put a backbeat to boogie woogie. The backbeat is the core of rock and roll. That's what separates it as a genre all its own, because there was no you know heavy backbeat before. And he defined it in his song. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Any old way you choose it, it's got a backbeat. You can't lose it. Huey right? Lewis redid that. Huh? Huey Lewis said the same lyrics. Yeah, so did the Beatles, so did the uh, Beach Boys. And, um, you know, that, that, that defines rock and roll. And so... Um, I had to look, you know, listen to these boogie woogie piano players, Pine Top Perkins and all these other ones, and I would learn that style, and that's what got me the gig, you know. And uh, that gig lasted 32 years. You know, he was my mentor, he was my hero, he was my my boss, and he was my friend. I've been to his home, he's been to my home, you know. Um, and there, you know, the the my favorite song in the whole world is uh, is Johnny Be Good, and okay. And to sit on stage playing that song with the man who wrote it and seeing thousands of people out there in some football stadium singing Go Johnny Go. And there's nothing that beats that. You know? It's just a thrill to well, do that. How happy were you then with uh Back to the Future? Oh um, I thought it was pretty cool. It's it pretty cool. Yeah. Did you, you ever meet, really, huh? You never met Marvin Berry, did you? No, I never met Marvin. I met I met a lot of the berries. <laughs> I didn't meet Marvin. It's Marvin, your cousin. Yeah. yeah. So
0: um and, and that shows you, I mean, that's one of the biggest movies of the 80s. And and he was a wannabe, you know, in that movie. He's a wannabe rock and roll star, and and that's what he's doing, is is playing that kind of stuff.
1: Exactly. And you know, another another movie that featured Chuck Berry's song that was very popular was uh Pulp Fiction. With uh, John yeah. Volta and uh, Irma, what's her name? Irma Thurman, right? Uma Thurman. Yeah, um, they they did that dance scene to a Chuck Berry yeah. song called "You Never." Yeah, can The tell. Twist
0: contest. Yep. Yeah,
1: say la vie, you never can tell. Um, by the way, know, that's a great soundtrack. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like I said, I I, I was his musical director uh, when when I was in his band. Uh, unless unless his bass player came with him, uh, my my good friend Jimmy Marsala, uh, who who has been working with him since the nineteen sixties. Uh, he he would direct, um, and then if if Jimmy was not was not on the gig, then I was the you know the director. Um, but uh, I was also the the uh, director for uh, musical director for Otis Blackwell. Otis Blackwell is an unsung musical hero. Otis Blackwell wrote uh, the biggest hit Elvis Presley ever had. He wrote a lot of songs for Elvis. He wrote a lot, a lot of songs for a lot of people. Elvis's biggest hit was "Don't Be Cruel." And that was written by Otis Blackwell. So was All Shook Up. So was Return to Sender. Paralyzed, such an easy question. He wrote Great Balls of Fire for Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, Breathless, Let's Talk About Us. He wrote the song Handyman uh, for Jimmy Jones back then. And then later in the 70s, I think uh, James Taylor covered it. Um, He wrote uh, Fever. You give me fever, boom, 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 right? Uh, he wrote that under the name, under the pseudonym uh, John Davenport, but that was Otis Blackwell. And now let me tell you, you know, Otis Blackwell made a lot of money. He's a black guy, made a lot of money. Uh, he was unsung, but he should have had twice as much money as he made. And let me tell you the story of Otis Blackwell. He was a, was a songwriter. He met Doc Pomus up in New York, who's an, another phenomenal songwriter. Um, and Doc hooked him up with uh, getting publishing and all that kind of stuff. And so he began writing these songs. And Colonel Parker, who managed uh, Elvis Presley, and there were some other songwriters who wrote for Elvis. In fact, one of them just died uh, last week, Mac Davis, who wrote uh, In the Ghetto for Elvis. Uh, But uh, the the songwriting team of uh, Lieber and Stoller, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, they were the Lennon and McCartney of the 50s. They wrote a lot of the songs for the Drifters, for the Coasters, for Elvis, stuff like Jailhouse Rock, and all these other great songs. Um, They got 100% of their writing royalties, as they should, all right? Colonel Parker told Otis Blackwell, if you want Elvis to record your songs, you have to give Elvis 50% writing credit in other words you're going to split your, your your royalties in half with him even though Elvis never wrote one word in a song
0: so then how did ray charles get away with it he owned his masters he all those things so what's the because we're all in about the same time period so yeah. what what's the difference was he working with better people was working with how better did people he had
1: had more knowledge of uh, of of the business um like you know little richard lost all his stuff he, he signed off on his copyrights you know so all his money came through live performances not through you know royalties from from the records because he gave away his copyrights so he had to fight to try to even get them back and get back pay uh chuck berry very very shrewd excellent businessman he made tons of money and, and his, his estate still makes money off off his songs um, because he 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 knew to, to own his masters and retain his copyrights. Um, some people just didn't know that. But here was the deal with Otis. Otis knows knows the deal, but um, <clears throat> Colonel Parker owned fifty percent of Elvis Presley. Okay. No one ever heard of a manager doing that. Usually, an agent will get ten to twenty percent at being an agent booking you. A manager will get anywhere from twenty to thirty five percent. But no manager gets 50%. But Elvis, not being, you know, an astute businessman, and he's a great talent, but not an astute businessman, you know, signed off on that. So everything that Elvis got, Colonel Parker got half of it. All right. So when he told Otis Blackwell, you have to give Elvis 50% writing credit, then Elvis ended up with 25% because Colonel Parker got the other right. 25%, right? Right. And that was, uh, Colonel Parker did not do that to the white writers. He only did it to Otis Blackwell. So when I worked with Otis Blackwell uh, for three years, I said to him, I said, why did, why did you do that? Why, why did you give that up, man? You know, you, you know you're owed twice as much. He said, Darrell, back in the 1950s, it was hard enough for a black man to, to, to make a living. And he said, especially playing rock and roll, which was not accepted by the establishment. He said 50% of Elvis Presley was a lot of money. And it certainly was. Otis was was a wealthy millionaire, but he should have had twice as much.
0: So do you think the difference then, In going back to the question I asked you, Ray Charles was kind of his own man. Yes, he was. Ray Charles uh, was a very smart man. Well, when, when we're talking about Blackwell, he's... I don't want to say he's relying because he's not because he's writing the songs, but he's relying on the fame of Elvis to make yeah. the money. Ray Charles is relying on himself to make the money, correct? And correct. so, would that be the difference where he knew I can strike out on my own? And
1: yeah, that 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 would be part of it for sure. And he had a good relationship with Atlantic Records, you know, for what you recorded for. Yeah, you know, he 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 proved himself. He made these hits, and then he would say. I'm not recording anymore unless I own the masters. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, and that's where the money is. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, you know, very, very smart guy. Um, The same thing happened to John Fogerty. In fact, John Fogerty got sued for doing his own songs because, you know, John Fogerty from Creedence Clearwater Revival. Mm -hmm. He wrote all those great songs, uh, you know, uh, Proud Mary and Looking Out My Back Door and, all those great songs, anyway. Fortunate Son, right? He wrote yeah, that too. Yeah. Right? So, um, but he didn't own the copyrights. He, 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 he let them go. And what happens is. So, I guess you need to explain because
0: for everyone to understand, explain when you say they lose the copyrights. They write it, it's theirs going into it, correct? I mean, correct. they're coming up with it, they're doing the song. So, how do they lose the copyrights to it?
1: Because what they do is. The record company wants wants to control the publishing. Okay. So they say, okay, so you know we'll we'll give you a recording deal. You know, you know, you you'll, you'll record X amount of 45s or singles for us, or later, you know, albums. You know, three album deal within three years or whatever. Um, but you have to sign over your copyright to us. Okay. And we'll pay your royalties. So you relinquish those rights, and then the record company owns it. And, I, and, I just can't see and, how and they have their own, they have their own publishing because at the time, um, it went out, especially with, uh, well, they're, they're two, two, two little separate things. So we're talking okay. about, um, like John Fogarty at, at the time, you know, these people, they have no idea that they're going to become legends Okay. You know, 10 years, 20 years, their songs are still going to be, uh, you know, making some money if they made any money at all. Uh, you know they're they're fresh out of high school. All they want to do is get on stage and right. chase girls and hear applause and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, yeah, sure, they want to be rock stars or whatever, but they, you know, it's a pipe dream for them. Uh, they're not thinking the business. They're thinking, you know, they should get out here and have some fun. Yeah, you want my song here? Take my song. Just put me on stage. Put me on the radio. You know, I'm famous. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, that's what they're thinking. All right, um, and that especially happened with a lot of black musicians. And oftentimes it was their way out of the ghetto. It was their way out to make a living doing something where they couldn't get a regular job uh, that would give them enough money. So uh, did you ever see the movie Cadillac records? Uh, that was the one about uh, uh, chess records.
0: Yeah. It, it, but it had, uh, it had what Beyonce in yourself? it. It was Ed about a James. Um, James yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. So, um, what what these white record companies would do uh back in the day a status symbol for black people was a cadillac okay you know when when you had a cadillac you had made it you you were it uh and it was thought that really you know only white people could get cadillacs uh because black people couldn't afford them they didn't have the jobs to get a cadillac and now um this record company is saying okay so you sign over these these songs to me, Tootie Fruity and Good Golly, Miss Molly, oh, and whatever else. Um, and I'm going to give you a brand new 1956 Cadillac. Now, the, the Cadillac only cost like what $2,500 back then or something. Man, I've made it. I got me a Cadillac right around town with the top down, all the girls climbing in. You know, isn't, isn't that what that song is about? Pink Cadillac, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> all the little girls, maybe the girls go by, right? <laughs> That's what it's all about. So, and, and, and what did Elvis do since so he got his, uh, his, his, a bunch of money? He went out and bought a pink Cadillac, right? And he bought it and gave his friends Cadillacs.
0: That's what I was about to say. Didn't he buy his mom a Cadillac and yeah. everything too?
1: He bought everybody a Cadillac. So it's a status symbol, you know, especially to somebody who, who, who comes from, from poverty and Elvis came from poverty. All right. A lot of these black artists came from poverty. So you know they get these Cadillacs, and and to be given a brand new Cadillac of that year, you know not not some five year old, ten year old Cadillac, but a brand new one of that year. Now to show you how far ahead they think, they don't think past their nose because you get your someone give, someone tells you you know sign over this song to me, and I'm going to give you a brand new 1956 Cadillac. They don't realize by 1957. That Cadillac is old and the girls aren't hopping in the car anymore. They're hopping in the 57 Cadillac that somebody else has. So, you know, you're passe, you're, you're out the door. Uh, but in the moment, that's great. So they would pay Black people with Cadillacs in exchange for these songs. And 50 years later, those songs are still making money. Every time one is played on the radio, royalties are paid through BMI or ASCAP or whatever, and that artist gets none the writer gets none because he gave up the copyright. Yeah. It's it's like it's, it's like inventing something, you know, you have trademarks, you have patents, and you have copyrights. So you don't give that stuff up. You can assign it to a publisher or to whatever, but you always want to make sure that you have what's called a reversion clause in your contract so that if you sign it over to somebody for 3 years, if they don't do what they say they're going to do with it, At the end of that three years, it can be reverted back. to.
0: it's almost like an option on a book then for like a script,
1: like a movie script. Precisely. Precisely. Exactly. And, and so Ray Charles knows that. Chuck Berry knew that. But they, they learned the hard way. They learned the hard way. Um, But, you know, some people make the mistake over and over again. Some people only make that mistake once. And that's what has to happen. Um, Even Billy Joel, who phenomenal talent, you know, he didn't, he, he allowed uh, his uh, brother-in-law, the uh, brother of, uh, you know, Christie Brinkley to, to be his manager. And he didn't watch, you know, what was going on. And he took all his money. You know, there are so many people out there that have these platinum records. They're all over the radio. They have all the fame in the world, but not one penny in the bank. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's their own fault for either trusting somebody they shouldn't trust or not learning how to do the business. I'll tell you a very interesting story. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you two interesting story, stories that are combined. OK. My you know, I majored in jazz. That, that was my major at Howard University. And, and my uh, my lead teacher, my, my head instructor would always call me a prostitute. And uh, okay. he, he was serious, too. And, um, I don't know where we're going with this story. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there, there's a term, and it's, it's not a nice term, but it's used in, uh, in different genres of music. There are what are called jazz Nazis. There are classical Nazis. There are blues Nazis. And what that means, is it's a derogatory term, but it means that, that they are purists. Mm-hmm. So if you're a classical Nazi, uh, the old term is a classical snob or a jazz snob. You only play that kind of music. You know? Only
0: play things on vinyl. Only play. Yeah, yeah. A
1: vinyl Nazi, you know, or whatever. Right. Okay. You know, audiophile or whatever, these things. So the derogatory term is Nazi. And um, he he told, he said, you know, why are you here uh, majoring in, in jazz and, and you're out, uh, you know, playing rock and roll? And all this stuff, you know, you're prostituting yourself, you know, because I should only be focusing on on jazz. Well, so um one day I had some some free tickets <laughs> to go see Sonny and Cher, and uh, wow, yeah. <laughs> so uh I had nothing else to do, and um I, I, I have to to do that disclaimer as to why I was there. Anyway. <laughs> I don't think that helps, but it's okay. (laughs) Okay. So I go there, and you know, when these people come to town, uh, now, of course, I'm in the union, but um, back then I wasn't, I was a student. Uh, They have to hire, you know, union musicians for the the pit band. And so I'm there, you know, watching Sonny and Cher. Who do I see in the pit band? My instructor. Oh. So I, I, you know, when he got done, I'm like, "So who's pimping you?" <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, we, we're good friends. But how uh, um, the mighty yeah, have fallen. Yeah. <laughs> so one day, um, I was uh, he, he, he was he was playing in the pit band, and he got me some tickets um, to see in a backstage pass and stuff to see uh, Isaac Hayes oh, and Beyond man. Warwick. They were touring together and the the, uh, the, sh- the title of the tour was a man, a man and a woman, something like that. So anyway, I go and I'm backstage and um, Isaac Hayes had this large entourage and there was this guy in this. This is in the 70s. And he had on this like super fly polyester, bright yellow suit with a feather in his in, in his in his hat. And he just kept zipping around the backstage areas, zoom, 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 zoom. He wasn't doing anything, but just zipping around. And so he had zipped by me one time too many. And I just asked, I said, hey, man, I said, you know, uh, what what exactly do you do? And he says, I don't do a damn thing. I'm nothing but a flunky. Those were his exact words. Yeah. Good to know your place, though. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, you know, I just looked at him and just you know, okay, and he just kept on zooming around doing nothing. Well, guess what? A couple of years later, Isaac Hayes declared bankruptcy. Now, I, and and his wife divorced him. Uh, he lost all his stuff, and he even had to give up his copyrights um, to to pay off debts and and give some to his wife uh, uh, as part of a uh, alimony uh, divorce settlement. All right. Um, Isaac Hayes was a phenomenal songwriter. He wrote a lot of those songs for Sam and Dave. And I think you mentioned earlier. I, I played. I played with uh, Sam. You know, D- David had died. David David Prother uh, was his name, um, but Sam Moore. So he wrote "Hold On, I'm Coming." I'm a soul man. Mm-hmm. You know, Isaac Hayes was a co-writer on that, and um, of course, Shaft. You know, the song and the and the music for the movie and all that. He had to give that. He'd give, give that stuff up. Now what had happened? Isaac Hayes had come out of the ghettos of Memphis where he was where he grew up and he he wanted to make it and uh, he he was a gang banger back in the day. He got out of that and excelled. And when he made it, he went back to to the, to the ghetto and pulled his people out of there and gave them jobs working for him. Isaac Hayes had a humongous heart good compassionate person but the mistake that he made was giving these people jobs in his um corporation or whatever as his road manager as is this as is that when they were not trained to do that the the best thing he could have done in retrospect of course you know hindsight's 2020 as they say right was, you know go back to the hood and take these people out and put them in school Put them in college, or put them in some vocational training school. You know, if you know if you want them for a road manager and they want to do that, teach them how to road manage. Teach them how to be an accountant. Teach, teach them how to do something professional rather right. than just hand them a job. Because if they don't know what they're doing, they're going to take you down faster than you know. And I'm not saying that you know they took him down intentionally. You know, maybe you know maybe some did, or but perhaps they didn't just because they didn't know what they were doing and they ruined his business. And that's what, that's what happened to Isaac Hayes. And, of course, you know, he died broke.
0: Well, and, and speaking, because we're kind of in the 70s now, we've kind of moved through time and we're in the 70s now. We're talking about Isaac Hayes. So <clears throat> you have a huge explosion of uh, black exploitation films. You have Shaft, as you mentioned, come out. You have uh, Across 110th Street come out. Uh, Superfly, all these things. Uh, You have Bobby Womack kind of show up in the music scene and, 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 and you see all these black artists that they start to make it big off these movies, not necessarily the movie itself, but the music that they're writing for it. And I mean, the Superfly album is fantastic, the entire Superfly album. Do you think that those two had something to do with each other? Or do you think they were completely separate, and it was just what we had moved into in that music? You know, kind of that musical taste of the time.
1: Which two are you talking about that had something to do with each other?
0: So, do you think with with the explosion of those movies because they came out, they they became cult classics, all that kind of stuff?
1: Absolutely, it's definitely correlated. Uh, You know, people people see the movie if the movie's a hit, then generally the soundtrack becomes a hit. Um, you know, you look at all these. uh, like, like James Bond, for example, you know, uh, Live and Let Die became a hit. The one um, that Adele did became a hit uh, right. because, because the movie was a hit. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, correlated. And usually, you know, there won't be a soundtrack for the movie unless the movie is a hit. And then they put all the songs on there, just like, a, you know, a Broadway play. If it's a hit, the next thing you want to know is they're going to put up, you know, the original soundtrack in the Broadway, right. blah, blah, blah. So... There's definitely a correlation. And speaking of Bobby Womack, <laughs> I met him one time. Uh, I was I, I played a gig for um, uh, uh, Ted Kennedy, and uh, at at his house, um, Ethel you're, was there. You're talking about the Senator Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy. Okay. Yes. Okay. So uh, he was married to Ethel Kennedy, and uh, they lived over in McLean, Virginia, and uh, I was backing up the coasters, and uh, and Mary Wells, and some other people. And uh, other artists, but uh, so I'm there, and uh, Mary Wells at the time was uh, was dating uh, Bobby Womack, so he'd come he'd come along with her.
0: Uh, I, I like Bobby Womack a lot.
1: Yeah, I like Mary Wells a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean I, I like Bobby Womack too, but,
0: uh, but <laughs> you <laughs> just liked one. her more.
1: Yeah, but, but, but you know, uh, it, it, um, I mean, it was it was a double pleasant surprise for me. Uh, because I didn't know she was going to be on, on on the gig. I just knew I was backing up some different artists. I knew I was going to be backing up the coasters, but I didn't know who else. And um, she was there, and she was like my favorite singer in 1964 when I was a little kid. Uh, my my favorite song was uh, "My Guy." Yeah, and uh, yeah, and there, boom, there she was in, in in person, and she was such a nice, nice lady.
0: it's nice when you meet uh kind of the people that you look up to and they you know they say never meet your heroes and stuff yeah yeah you
1: might be disappointed yeah
0: yeah so let's go through real quick through time i want to talk um as we go through each decade 40s your favorite artist of the 40s
1: uh louis jordan okay jordan would be one of them what would we know him for Caldonia saturday night fish fry ain't nobody here but us chickens uh i'm definitely gonna have to look those up well how old are you uh i am 44 okay okay that's music.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i know some of that music i just never heard
1: of that one uh okay 50s chuck berry Okay, Elvis Presley. I mean, a lot of those people. Little Richard, Jerry Lee. So I think that's what you would be based in then. I mean, I think yeah. that's, yeah. So 60s? <sighs> 60s. I like James Brown. I like, um, I like the Beatles. I like, gosh, a lot of people. Um Wow. It's hard to say because the, the '60s was, was a whole decade, you know, ten years, where the '50s was only a half a decade because rock and roll didn't, didn't start in 1955. Right, right. Um, I like I like this guy who was a one-hit wonder, Bobby Hebb. Uh, you don't know the name, right? But you know his no. song, "Sunny." Remember that song, "Sunny." No. Oh man, you got you got everybody's done "Sunny," and uh, I, I I love Bobby Hebb. Um, I also liked, uh, Roy head who just died a couple weeks ago. I got to work with him too. treat her right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh Uh-huh. Um, I like Bobby Gentry. Okay. ode to Billy Joe. Uh,
0: how about, uh, so in sixties, it's more of a, you know, fifties, we can, a lot of that was new sixties. You're starting to do you think rock is kind of fragmenting out in the sixties?
1: Well, yeah. Um, it, you know, the, the fifties, they, they tried to recapture stuff. Uh, you know, you had some, some, uh, what happened, you know, the establishment was still down on rock and roll. Right. Right. So Elvis got drafted into the army. So he got taken off the scene. Uh, Chuck Berry went to prison. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis married his 13 year old cousin. So he he was exiled from the rock and roll radio and stuff, and a lot of a lot of his gigs got canceled and things like that. Little Richard, fittingly, fittingly, uh, fittingly. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, well, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. 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 So re- remind me. Don't don't let me forget. I got I got some stuff okay. to say about that. Okay. okay. No, no no I didn't marry my 13 year old cousin, but I got some stuff to say about it. All okay. Right. So, uh, Little Richard had quit playing rock and roll and had gone to Bible school and became an ordained minister. And then he would later come, he would vacillate back and forth between rock and roll and, and the church because, you know, you talk about, uh, influence of music. You know, he, 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 he felt guilty. He felt, you know, this was the devil's music that, that he was singing and he would give it up, but then he would come back and sing it again. But he'd bring all these Bibles with him and hand out Bibles. To everybody in the uh, in the concert, while he's singing, you know, Lucille, and all this other stuff. But, um, but
0: I I think that has even crossed over. If you look at like Kirk Franklin and stuff like that, a yeah. lot
1: of that stuff has crossed over into the music. Listen, the you know people like Sister Rosetta, uh, Mahalia Jackson, got you know early gospel music. There is only one thing separating. Gospel music from the blues, and that is the lyrics. The music is the same. Right. The music is the same. Uh, what, what makes the difference is gospel music has more lyrics of a religious nature, where the blues has more lyrics of a secular nature. Right. That's the thing that separates it. Um, so, you know, when, when you're ra- a lot of the greatest singers in the world, especially black ones and even country ones, were raised in the church singing all these hymns and things like that and then you know they found out oh you know i can make a lot more money if i sing this commercial stuff and a lot of them would feel guilty about doing it and then later on return you know back to the church um and, you well, know you going would, up into the 90s mace that was with uh, puff daddy he did the same thing yeah you know especially when they get older or they have some traumatic experience or something mm-hmm. You know, it's like somebody you know going you know going to jail and, and then you know finding the Bible. Um, yeah. It happens. They they find it quickly. They find it very quickly. Yeah. Some genu- some genuinely, some not so genuinely. Right. Yeah. So um, the, the church, you know, ha- has has a big influence on on a lot of singers, especially if they grew up in that. They feel you know that they have betrayed, um, and then now they're coming back to the fold or whatever. Especially as they age. Um, like for example, Jerry Lee Lewis you know I love Jerry Lee he's a good friend of mine he's he's been a big influence on me um he uh he, he was a wild man i mean technically Jerry Lee should have been dead many times over all the things that he's done abuse to, to his body through alcohol and drugs and things like that uh I, in fact i was supposed to open up for him uh, last year uh when he was when he was coming to town here but right before he had a stroke and uh and that debilitated him he, he's now he, he just you know got out of a uh, rehab uh several months back or whatever he's home he's doing a lot better as to whether he'll ever play again i don't know but he just did what a gospel album you know well, and,
0: we mentioned it when we were when we were talking about um i just drew a blank um that was uh um, John cash yeah. did the same yeah. thing exactly. as he got, as he got closer to the end, you know, yeah. when, when the man mm-hmm. comes around all those, yeah,
1: yeah. he, he yeah. started
0: the same thing
1: because you know, you're going to get that call and that's a call you can't just uh, not answer <laughs> when he <laughs> yeah. calls, you got to pick up the phone. Yeah. You know, you, you really want to hear a funny thing. I forgot who did it originally, but uh, I think Ray Stevens had a version of it as well. You know, when you have about 18 or so minutes sometime uh, go on YouTube uh downloaded or whatever, listen to uh phone call from God. It's it is so funny. It's hilarious. A country artist Well
0: Ray Stevens was kind of a comedic writer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he did a version of it, I believe, but it was done originally by somebody else. I forgot the guy's name off the top of my head. But yeah, it's 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 you know it's a natural thing. And um uh little Richard, you know, would stop um he, he would not play on uh on Friday nights, you know, if, if you booked him uh, you had to do it like on you know any, any day but Friday because he kept the Sabbath, so you know um, you you could you could not book him on a Friday night no matter how much money, you know you would uh, you would offer him, um, right? But you know g- great singer, you know ph- phenomenal singer, and yeah, you know, I'm I'm very sorry to see him go because he was. Uh, well, let me, uh, I've got a picture of you two together. And yep, and, and what's he hold? He's given me this this Bible book of his.
0: Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's strange to, I think it's strange to a lot of people to see that as as uh, they get older, they they know these people as wild men and and all that kind of stuff, and when they see them get older, I mean, I, I hate to keep going, uh, you know, back to him, but when you when you talk about all the people that we've talked about and um, you you see their change as they get older, I don't know if it turn certain people off if it brings new people in but it's definitely not what you're used to from them
1: yeah you know and I me mean, i i'm guilty of that too because you know as a kid i'd i'd watch uh leave it to beaver i had no choice i mean there were you know i had to watch leave it to beaver and uh, little opie taylor on uh andy griffith um, and all these people make room for daddy and you know father knows best all these Right, you know, that my age, you know, that I could try to relate to as best I could, because you know they all were white kids. But uh, you know, I see Ron Howard today, and he's balding. Um, you know, but so am I. You know, yeah. but when I think of Ron Howard, I think a little Opie Taylor, and you know, when I think of or, or uh, even Ray- Ricky Cunningham, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, 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 I could pretty much accept Richie Cunningham. Okay, and, you know, <laughs> but. Now you know, we, we won't talk about his brother because that guy's been off the rails for right. years. So. Yeah, he, he took off, man. You know, he, he wasn't even put on the show anymore. You only know, saw him like once or twice. <laughs> but uh <laughs> I you know, I loved Happy Days and all that, and you know, he he he's like around my age, but it's hard for me to see him as my age because I always t- picture him as that little kid on right, right in Mayberry or on Happy Days, and and you know, and then you know, when I look at myself in the mirror, and I'm aging, you know, I have to realize, hey, you know what? You know, it's okay for him to age too.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: it it, it happens to all of but, us. But 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 you but you know, but see, but here's the problem psychologically, it hurts us because absolutely when, when we see them age, it means we are aging. <laughs> well, and <laughs> and you and don't it, want to accept that,
0: you know, and and I think back, even like I said, I'm 44, and I I see. Well, there's two things that I see now. Uh, I see, you know, my daughters will show me something and I, I don't know who that person is before I knew. Oh, I know who that is. I know who that is. Mm-hmm. I don't know who these people are. They show me and I don't understand. I've gotten to that age now where I don't understand some of the stuff they do. Like, I don't get the point of it. Like yeah. TikTok. I don't get it. I don't do. It, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, they dance all the time now and it looks like they're having a seizure. Uh, I don't. I don't know what they're doing. So I've I've reached that point where you start looking back and think, oh, you know, they had a they had a great documentary on YouTube about the '80s, and each Sunday they would do a different uh, year of the '80s, mm-hmm. and I remembered all that stuff, and I think I think back, man, that was a long time ago. Now that we talk about it, and in speaking of that. The music world has changed so much in that time frame. If you look at when we talked about people losing their masters and and the rights to their music and all that kind of stuff, you see so many people now taking it on their own with no record company, with no manager, with no anything, cutting their own digital copies, mixing their own, you know, they can buy a $200 program for their computer, do their own music, make their own beats. Build studios in their house, mm-hmm. and and they're making millions now. You you see it all the time.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And do you think that's a positive thing or a negative thing for the music industry? Because I can see it as both.
1: I can see it as both too. Uh, the positive thing is the fact that you don't have to be, for lack of a better term, uh, raped by by these corporations and these um, these greedy uh, record labels that you know whose books you can't see and uh, you know you know they're making millions of dollars and you're only making a couple thousand here and there right Uh, things like that so you know uh you put it out there yourself and now you're competing with them that's great but um on the downside they have the distributorship where they can distribute your music all over the world um you know you don't have that you don't have those connections Uh, Or you got to hire somebody to do that for you, so so that's more money out out you know out the door. Um, And the quality of of the recordings, uh, it's gotten a lot better. It's gotten a lot better over the years because you know the computers uh, have gotten better um, and the programs have gotten better, the software. But you know you can generally tell for a long time if this uh, CD was homemade or was it uh, professionally made in a in a upscale. In a recording studio right you know you, 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 all these things are built acoustically perfect and you know you have separation from the from the different tracks and this that and the other right um so you know rather than you know it was recorded in my basement or my garage or something like that right. well <laughs> the, the, and and it's crazy because you know i ask you is that good or is it bad
0: right. the reason the reason i look at it as bad is because you almost it almost ends up you you get the Wild Wild West where it's everybody and, and it's it's an oversaturation of music because I think we get to a point where they make this music on their own and everyone thinks they can do it. So everyone makes an album, everyone's, you know, and you get an oversaturation, which leads to,
1: in my opinion, worse music because there's no standard anymore. Exactly. Exactly. It's like karaoke. You don't know what you get when you go to hear somebody sing you know exactly you know and and so that's the only thing
0: you know I, I can't go against these people because 10 years ago i couldn't have done this show i can't record all this stuff 10 years ago i could have never done that mm-hmm. so i'm i'm thankful that it's here and, and i can put this out to, to all these different places i think though that you run across the same problem with that where you come across everyone thinks they can do it so everyone puts it out whether they're screaming, whether they have any content or not. And you get that oversaturation where people get very untrusting of what they should listen to, what they, what kind of trend they should go towards. And you get a a switch of trends a lot. Uh, and, and it becomes a very hard market to break into. I I would say, and you could say better, but I would think it would be harder to break in now than before because everybody's doing it. Now you had to have some talent,
1: yeah, everybody's doing it. So it is a harder thing to break into. And what you have to do is you have to carve your own little niche, you know, where where you're not doing what everybody else is doing. You know, you have a certain thing that you do and 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 your competition is very limited, but you also have to be able to to be an excellent PR person. Because, you know, like they say, you know, if the tree falls in, in the woods and you don't hear it fall, it might as well not have fallen. Uh, so, you know, you've got to get it out there. Right. Um, And that's where distribution and and pr come in um you know that's why people are putting their stuff up on facebook and on youtube and you know those are good marketing tools also um but you got you know you gotta you gotta do more than that um you know speaking of of copyrights and things like that how important that is if if you would uh bring up the song sure on our youtube chuck berry um sweet little 16. you want you want this you want the studio version Might be like a, I don't know, a black and orange uh, album cover, you might see. We'll listen to a couple of verses later. Okay.
0: All right. I'm bringing this up in just a second. All right. Here we go.
1: They're really Rock in Boston and Pittsburgh, PA, deep in the heart of Texas and round the Frisco Bay, all over St. Louis and down in New Orleans. Got to have about a half a million. A famed autograph. Her wallet filled with pictures. She gets them one by one. Becomes so excited. I watch her look at her run. Boy. Oh, mommy, mommy, please may I go. It's such a sight to see. Somebody steal the show. Oh, daddy, daddy, I beg of you, whisper to mommy, it's all right with you, cause they'll be rocking on the band standing. That song was recorded and written by Chuck there the same year I was born, 1958. Okay. Okay. Five years later, another artist came along and just flat out stole that song, they kept the same chord progression, the same melody, all they did was change the words and they had the biggest hit of their career in 1963, five years later, until Chuck Berry sued them and won. And now uh, when when their song gets played, Chuck Berry's estate gets paid. (laughs) Now, they did not do this maliciously. They they loved Chuck Berry. He was a big influence on them. But, you know, so they were trying to do it as a tribute or whatever. But you can't just take somebody else's music and simply change the words and call it your own. All right. So now I want you to play um, Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. It, it sounds exactly the same. It's the same song.
0: Yep. Let me uh, bring it up real quick. I can only play little bits and pieces, or they'll
1: ding me on the right. Let me, uh, so you want the studio version again. Alright, here we go. If everybody
0: across the USA,
1: then everybody be served like California. You see 'em wearing their baggies.
0: Archie Sandos too. A bushy bushy blonde hair serving USA. I'm so the same yeah so well you know and it, it's funny you know talking about that vanilla ice had this problem when he did uh ice ice baby and uh he got sideways of queen and david bowie for using under pressure
1: uh-huh.
0: and he he said over and over in his interviews "No, no 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 i have one little Last symbol drop that changes it from what and if you don't know, you, you know what I mean, if you're not listening to it, and and it seems to be that he got away with it because he said I, I added that one little symbol drop. It's it's different than theirs, it's different enough to be
1: different. Well, you know, put uh you talk about um uh vanilla Hi, ice and hold hold on to him for a second. So this this is why it's important to always retain your copyright, all right? Uh, if Chuck had not retained his copyright, he could not have sued. And right. so, so he makes money not only off of Sweet Little 16, but he makes money off of Surfing USA. You know, n- not a bad deal. No, not at all,
0: because I think they made quite a bit of money off that Indeed, song.
1: and they still do. It's still being played on the radio. So, I mean, Chuck's not around anymore, but, but his, his family is. A, right, so his estate collects that money. Um, so it's always important to to protect your intellectual property, uh, you know. And like I said, a lot of these people at the time were young, you know. They didn't they didn't know fifty years later because I mean, you're talking 1958, um, and now we're in, in what 2020. You know, th- those songs are still being played on right. the radio stations or whatever, absolutely. Or, or it might get played in a movie like uh, like uh, Back to the Future. Johnny Be Good came out in 1958 as well. So, they made a movie named Johnny Be Good where that was the theme song of it. It was Anthony Michael Hall playing football. Yeah, there you go. And um uh what was the other movie that, that put a revival? You know, you mentioned do, do movies and and, and old fiction songs.
0: did a revival on a lot of old songs.
1: Yeah. And uh so did uh, you remember the movie The Commitments? hmm it, it revived uh Must Nine Sally. Right. Uh Sleepless in Seattle uh
0: mm-hmm. revived a lot Before of old. Yep. A lot of old stuff. So I got two more questions for you before we start to wrap this up. Okay. We know that you played with your, uh, idol. Mm We, we know that, but if there was another musical idol that you never met, that you could meet, who would it be? And what would you ask them?
1: Wow. Um, Freddie King and I would ask him to teach me how to play guitar like him
0: okay now can you play guitar at all? yeah oh okay well then we're good
1: I mean yeah, but like him though <laughs>
0: at least at least you're not starting from you know the ground
1: floor well it's like it's like the guy who um who got his uh fingers you know slammed in the door in the car door or something so he has to go to the uh, doctor and have surgery and you know be putting splints and all that kind of stuff. And he asked the doctor, hey, you know, when when this whole thing is over. And because the guy says, you know, you gotta keep him wrapped up in this cast for six weeks or whatever. And the guy says, Well, you know, will I be able to play the piano after you know I get all the stuff off? And the doctor says, Yeah, of course you will. Yeah, everything will be perfect. The guy says, Well, that's good because I never played before. (laughs) 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 So, last question to you.
0: What separates you as a musician from other musicians? What do you bring to this world of music that no one else brings? There's got to be something.
1: Wow. Uh, besides the plan, right? Um, yeah,
0: well, <laughs> I, I definitely don't think anyone's done that but you. Oh,
1: God. You know... I, I don't know. Um, I, I got into it to, to bring happiness. Uh, so I hope I'm not bringing anybody any sadness. Um, what do I bring?
0: I didn't want to put you on the spot. I figured you would have this answer like no, ready wish, to go.
1: I wish I did. You know, um, I, I try to bring, I try to put my own, you know, unique twist on things. Uh, if I do somebody else's song so that uh, it's not. Like, like, like a top 40 band that, that play everything note for note like the record and right. i do that when i played in top 40 bands but uh, you know you, you evolve you want to become yourself right and um i you know i'm known for my own style of uh, of playing boogie- woogie piano uh so that might be one thing but something that you know uh what i what i hope that uh and a lot of people i think have done this but i hope that people will be inspired uh by me to to, uh, I try to bring education to the songs that you know that I, okay. I put out. Let people know where they came from, uh, who did them originally. If I do a cover song, or if I do one of my own, was it inspired by somebody? Um, let them know. You know, how, how did I come to write this song? You know, this was influenced. You know, by Little Richard or by Chuck Berry or by Elvis or whoever. Um, and tell people about copyrights and educate them. You know, if you're going to be a musician. I don't care how much talent you have, you better learn the business or you're not going to survive in it.
0: Well, I think that's great and and to take it a step further, I think that when you talk about education, I think this goes full circle back to our our very first story. When we talk about that guy that you met at the clan, you educated him on uh the history of that music and you broke down those barriers to show look you've been listening to this all these years but if you listen to this and this and this i mean it's it's where it all comes from so i think you take that education that step two which like i said brings us back full circle to what we do and that was when i think about you that's what i think is that you bring different is is the education of we're all different but we can all come together in this crazy thing called
1: music or
0: However, you can mix together is a good thing.
1: Yeah, I I I would I would compare it to like the pieces in a a jigsaw puzzle. Each one is cut a little differently, but you know you learn how to where they fit, where you fit, and when when they all fit together, you got that beautiful picture. and and if
0: you can't find your corner piece you just jam it
1: in there so that's it
0: (laughs) so daryl what do you want to promote what do you want to talk about uh this is it it's on you now uh you tell us
1: well um when my new book comes out i'd like to come back okay and uh, and talk about that sometime you are always welcome here i appreciate Um, that very very much
0: yeah so Guys, um, we wanted to bring him back on. You guys wanted him back on. We wanted to look at it in a different approach tonight. Like I said, um, you have so many things um, that, that you can teach us about just knowing each other. And I think it's really needed in these kind of times. Um, I want to get further into... The next time you come on, we're gonna to have to remember to talk about uh, when you said that you were into espionage, and I want to kind of go into your father the next time sure. and talk about is that because I know he was a big influence in your life. If that was what led you to the espionage and the James Bond uh, briefcase and all that kind of stuff, if if that had something to do with it. But I appreciate it so much you coming by, guys. Check out Daryl Davis. You can still check out his documentary, Accidental Courtesy. Um, is there anything else you want to promote right now other than when the book comes out?
1: Uh, let's see. You can check out my podcast Okay, called, uh, changing minds with Daryl Davis. You can find it on Apple podcasts and some of the other, uh, podcast outlets, changing minds with Daryl Davis. There are a lot of podcasts out there called changing minds with so-and-so and so-and-so, uh, which are all good podcasts. You'll check them out as well. But if you want to hear mine, you've got to say with Daryl Davis.
0: Okay. So changing minds with Daryl Davis, you can find it. I'm sure everywhere that you can find this podcast. So if you want to check us out, you can go to the Facebook group, uh, DTD podcast. You can check us out on YouTube at the DTD podcast. Uh, you can check us out on Instagram, on Twitter, on Twitter. It's at double Speaks, uh, double Speak DJ guys. That's going to be it for this week. Daryl. We appreciate it so much. You My coming place. in to talk to Thank us again. You. Uh, Thank you for everything that you've done again for this world and for the music industry. That's going to be it guys. That's Daryl. I'm DJ. This is the DTT podcast and we'll catch you on the next one. See you guys.
1: Take care.